Okay, so I guess we can start. So we're going to give a little bit of a talk as usual at this point. And tonight I'm going to talk about, maybe I should talk about New Year's resolutions, but I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> so sometimes you lose the opportunity, you should take the opportunity, but you don't. So I, whatever. I'm going to talk about the idea of right view, and especially not so much the content of right view, but more about how right view actually affects our life, and especially how it affects the idea of the spiritual path. And um, so that's what it's going to be about. And I want to show you that one of the interesting things about the idea of right view is that uh, if you feel that you're having some problem in your life, uh, you feel that something isn't going quite right, yeah? you're having some suffering, for example, in your life, or you have going in the wrong direction or whatever, uh, Usually, uh, one of the reasons for that, uh, one of the most important reasons, uh, is uh, the idea of somehow looking at the world in the wrong way. Uh, yeah? Not really understanding how the world works. Uh. So wrong view is often the cause, uh, the foundation for so many of the problems that we have in life. Uh. So, uh, are you sure you want to leave? Uh, this is going to be interesting, you know, uh, at the back there. Uh, you sure you want to go? Yeah? Okay, well, see you later. <laughs> okay, never mind. Uh. So, uh, so this is the uh, kind of the idea, and that be then it becomes kind of one of the interesting things about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, we all, no one likes to get depressed, no one likes to break a leg, uh, no one likes to have sorrows and all kind of problems in life, yeah, or choosing the wrong spiritual path or whatever, no one likes these kind of things. Uh, but if you see uh, any problem that you have uh, as an opportunity, uh, as an, you know, you have a, if you understand that it is some sort of wrong view underlying it, it means it is an opportunity to achieve more right view. In other words, more aligning of your view of the world with the way the world actually is. And that's great. Yeah? It means that all suffering, all problems we have become an opportunity for spiritual growth. And not just spiritual growth, but also growth in your personal life. Because wrong view uh, are a problem for the spiritual life, but they're also a problem for everything in the world. Yeah? If you think in the wrong way, if you, your, your outlook is not in accordance with reality, well, you're going to do stupid things. Uh, that's kind of just obvious uh, you know, from that. Uh, wrong view leads to wrong actions, because you don't know how to see things in the right way. Uh. So, uh, interesting, right? Uh, yes? No? Maybe? No. <laughs> you don't have to answer. Um, uh, and uh, this was particularly interesting because I was in Sydney quite recently. I'd just been away for almost a month. Uh, yeah, You probably wouldn't know, but anyway, I've been away for a month. Uh, and uh, first of all, I was in, uh, in Sydney. Uh, yeah, And I, I really enjoy traveling a little bit because you meet so many nice Buddhists everywhere. It is not just in Perth that you have nice Buddhists, uh, but you have them everywhere around the world. Yeah, Even in Sydney, they have really nice Buddhists. <laughs> And so I was in Sydney and I visited my, my very good friend, Bhante Sujato, who has his little monastery over there. He has a monastery called the Lokanta Vihara, which means the monastery at the end of the world. Where is the monastery at the end of the world? In the middle of Sydney. That is not the end of the world. Right? <laughs> it is in the middle of the world, to say the least. So I think that should, maybe we should change that name. But it's, anyway, it's a nice name, but it doesn't really fit the location so well. Um, but uh, so we, the, one of the reasons I was there was to 
do a book launch. Yeah, book launches are really cool. It was a little bit like the book I was just talking about before we the Dhamma talk, no, the, before the meditation. That was a little bit like a kind of book launch. But this was like a, a launch of the translation of the Buddha's discourses or the Buddha's conversations with people. These are known as the suttas. And Bhante Sujato is one of these kind of really genius people, and he has translated pretty much all the suttas by himself. It's like this many volumes of books, right? This is like the back of the book, the spine is about that long. And that's what he has translated from Pali into English. Pali is this ancient Indian language. English is, well, modern English. And so there was a book launch to basically make these books available, you know, in Australia, actually to the whole world. And then there was one section next to it, and that was my translations. Yeah, wow, I was so proud. When I, you know, I, I saw all the books, the only book, I didn't see any of his books, I just saw my books on the end. That's the only thing you see here. And I thought, I must, I thought to myself, I must be really self-centered because the only books I can see are my translations. I can't really see all the other stuff. <laughs> And I realize we are all a little bit like that. We're always a little bit focused on ourselves. This is kind of just nature of things, yeah? It's kind of almost unavoidable to some extent. Uh, so anyway, we were there to do this book launch of all of this word. This is basically the word of the Buddha, yeah? So this is very powerful and interesting stuff. Uh, and where did we have it? We had it in the, in the State Library of New South Wales, this kind of grand old building in Sydney, very beautiful, very, very tall ceilings inside. Uh, so kind of very stately place. Uh, and uh, there was quite a large crowd present, maybe 150 people or so. Uh, like maybe like tonight, maybe a little bit, maybe not quite as many. Isn't this great? Uh, here we are at Amaloka Center. Yeah, we have uh, maybe more people coming than come to the launch of the suttas in Sydney. That's kind of really wonderful thing about Perth. We have a very strong Buddhist community over here, you know. Uh, it's a marvelous thing, yeah. But anyway, so we were there, quite a large crowd, and then we had Jeff Gallup. Uh, Remember Jeff Gallup? Yeah, the ex-premier of Western Australia. Yeah, he, he now lives close to Sydney. So he came, he's kind of a semi-Buddhist, very friendly with Buddhism. And he's also this patron of uh, uh, our meditation center down in uh, Serpentine. Yeah, so he came for the launch and he kind of gave the keynote address to get things going. Yeah. And so the kind of whole feeling was very elevated and quite, you know, quite nice because of the people who came and the situation and everything. Yeah. And then, of course, I, myself, and Bhante Sujato, Bhante Sujato and myself, we had to get on stage, yeah, because this is kind of part of the deal. This is kind of <laughs> how, how things work. And then we had kind of this discussion, a moderated discussion by a very nice moderator. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I said, uh, not Bhante Sujato, but I said, you see, this is the self-centeredness again. Uh, don't for <laughs> forgotten everything what he said. I want to remember what I said. <laughs> um, uh, one of the things I said at this uh, book launch uh, was because we were launching the word of the Buddha, I said this uh, is the most important event uh, in the history of Australia. <laughs> I'll be very naughty. This is kind of the fun thing. You, when you get on the speaker seat, you can do whatever you want. No one can stop you. You can be naughty if you want. You can say all kind of random stuff and really enjoy yourself. Uh, so I said this is the most important event in Australian history. And then I backed it up by saying the reason is uh, because the literature that is now right there in front of you, the word of the Buddha, this is the most important literature uh, in the history of the world. Uh. So how could it not be the most important uh, event in Australian history if we are dealing with the most important literature in the history of the world? Uh? 
And when I say that, I, I don't just say that kind of without any uh, reason. Uh, it's not just a joke. Uh, yeah, I'm actually being quite serious when I say that. Uh, and the reason is because the word of the Buddha, uh, what makes it so unique, uh, it is a vision of reality, the vision of the way the world actually is. Uh, the Buddha is the eye of the world. He sees first, uh, and then that enables us also to see the world, at least uh, initially on faith, on confidence, uh, but after a while enables us too to see the world in the same way. Uh. So it is a vision of reality, and that vision of reality means that we get access uh, to right view, in a sense, seeing the world as it actually is. Uh. And of course, that is incredibly important. Uh. It is extraordinary important because if you don't see the world as it actually is, uh, if you have wrong view, uh, you're going to make all kinds of bad decisions, uh, right? Uh. If you think that something is like A, but it turns out to be negative A, the exact opposite, you can't make good decisions because you have wrong ideas about the way things are. So seeing things as they actually are is really absolutely fundamental to be able to live well, to have a good life, to do all of these things that we want to do, to actually have a good society together and live well together. So for this reason, and from a Buddhist point of view, the Buddha is the foremost person in the history of the world who had right view, who saw things in the right way. The word of the Buddha, the suttas of the Buddha, like this many volumes, right? It's just one big bunch of right view, the whole thing. That's what it is, a pile of right view. Heap right view upon right view upon right view. As you read through the thousands of pages, you kind of, all you're saying is right view in there. You're seeing the word, way, the Buddha, where the Buddha saw the world, uh, which is, uh, according to the Buddha himself, the way the world actually is. Uh. This is the importance of right view. I would say it is so important uh, that this is the most important literature in the history of the world. Uh. Nothing really comes up to that. Uh. And so you can see how incredibly fortunate we are as Buddhists or people who are inclined to Buddhism uh, that we have access to these extraordinary things, these extraordinary teachings uh, by this uh, greatest spiritual genius in human history. Uh, that is what we have access to. Uh, and once you start to understand that, it's like, wow, this is amazing. Uh, you sit there buzzing on your seat because you realize you're in touch with something just really extraordinary. Uh, Sometimes we feel joy and happiness over tiny little things in life, but this is really worthwhile having joy and happiness about. So once you start to understand these teachings, it's like, wow, it gives access to so, much, so many positive emotions which then drive your meditation practice. And so what I want to do tonight is to show you some examples of how right view works so as to enable us to kind of live a better life and to kind of to sort out some of the issues, some of the problems that we all have to deal with in our existence. Is anyone here who doesn't have any problems at all? Who kind of is just super duper happy? Yay, no problems, everything is perfect. If that is the case, then you probably don't need to be here. To <laughs> No, maybe stay on, because it's good to stay on anyway, so I'm just, uh, just messing around. Uh, so, uh, so what are some of these issues? Uh, one of the issues I was, uh, sometimes as uh, monks we get asked questions, people come to us and they say, oh, can you please talk on this subject? Uh, yeah, and one of the subjects I was recently asked to talk about uh, was dealing with terminal illness. Uh, yeah, and uh, I don't know if anyone here has, maybe some of the people here today may very well have some of these issues uh, because it's kind of natural to 
maybe speak some spiritual solace sometimes when we have uh, serious problems like this. Uh, but anyway, it is an important question. Uh, yeah? So how does this relate to the idea of right view? Uh, and so when we're talking about terminal illness, first of all, I think what this person was asking about was the person themselves, the person who has the illness. How do they deal with that issue? Uh, they probably should have asked about themselves. Yeah, they were just a carer or a family member. They probably have asked, how do I deal with it? Uh, but somehow we tend to transfer onto the other person. We kind of pretend it's in their interest, but actually we are the ones who are scared because the other person has terminal illness. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, you kind of transfer that scaring onto the, that fear onto someone else, and it kind of uh, gets very complicated. Uh, psychology is complicated. Human beings are incredibly complicated and difficult. Uh, kind of minds, we kind of do all kind of crazy stuff. Uh. <laughs> but anyway, so how do we deal with this in terms of right view? Huh? What is the right way of thinking about terminal illness? Uh, and uh, when we are terminally ill, especially maybe we are kind of approaching death, uh, we want to have a good death. Yeah? This is kind of the point. I guess if you're going to die, you might as well have a good death. Uh, yeah. It's kind of actually very important to have a good death, the ability to let go, to be peaceful, etc., etc. Especially if you have an idea of an afterlife. Yeah, it's very nice to die in a good way. Regardless, it is nice. So how do we deal with terminal illness? You know, not feeling too guilty and bad about the past and kind of being more optimistic about this. And one of the important things to do when you are terminally ill is to be able to forgive the past, uh, let go of things in the past, uh, right? Because very often we carry the past with us, uh, it taints our mind, it creates all kinds of problems for us. Uh, so how can we let go of the past? How can we forgive people in our life? Uh, yeah, this is one of the critical things. How can we forgive ourselves uh, for the things that we have done? Uh, often we are harder on ourselves, perhaps, than we are on anyone else. Uh, and one of the beautiful ways of doing this, uh, yeah, this comes straight back to the idea of right view, how to look at the world in the right way, uh, is to remember that we, everyone in this world, we're all just conditioned. Uh, we have come into this world through all these cause and conditions in the past. During our life, we have all these cause and conditions working on us. And our personality, the person you are now, is the sum total of all those cause and conditions. How much responsibility do you, do you have at the end of the day? How much really is, is it your fault? And the more you start to see yourself clearly in light of those cause and conditions, the more you remember the past, the more you understand how you are now is conditioned by these things, the easier it is to forgive yourself and say, yeah, I did this, but really, I probably didn't have much choice. Yeah, and that's such a beautiful idea. And it's actually, from a Buddhist point of view, it is right view. Yeah, it comes from the Buddhist idea of non-self. There is no inherent essence that takes charge of your life and decides what to do. You are the sum total of the cause and conditions that work on you. So remember that. Reflect on it. Make it your own insight by gradually allowing it to sink into your mind. And as it becomes your understanding of the world, as it becomes almost like a felt experience, it starts to become very powerful. You are able to forgive yourself. You are able to forgive the people around you. And these things always go together. Forgiving yourself and forgiving others are just two sides of the same coin because it emerges out of the same insight that we are all, in the end, the sum of our cause and conditions. So this is the first thing I would say to someone who is terminally ill. 
Remember, forgive the past. Let go of all of those things. There's nothing there. We are all victims in this world. We're all victims of this cause and conditions coming together. And then we victimize each other and we kind of create all this mess in the world. But in the end, everyone is really a victim. And that's a beautiful way of thinking about the world. It means we stop blaming. We stop saying that other people are the problem. Yeah, we're all conditioned in a way to kind of hurt each other sometimes. Sometimes to be kind to each other. Actually, more often probably to be kind to each other. But still, this is the way the world works. And this builds up all of these beautiful qualities inside of us. So this is the first thing to remember, yeah? To let go of the past, forgive, and see people in the right way. The other thing that I would tell a person who is terminally ill uh, is to remember the goodness in their life. Uh, yeah? Very often we are very bad at remembering all the goodness, the good things that we have done. Uh, to help them to see the goodness of their life. Uh, maybe they have kept certain precepts if they are a Buddhist. Uh, maybe they have been generous coming to the monastery. Uh, yeah? uh, we just had a funeral service yesterday. One of the uh, ladies who have been coming to the Buddhist society for so long uh, and uh, it was just so wonderful just to be able to reflect back on all the good qualities, yeah? Coming to the monastery regularly, helping out, keeping the five precepts, doing all the right things. Uh, and it's so joyous when you see that. And sometimes uh, we forget these things in ourselves. Uh. There is a nice um, piece of research that was done about how easily we remember uh, the bad things, uh, yeah, uh, the kind of the criticism that we receive. We, f we remember criticism so easily. Criticism, someone says the smallest thing and bang, it goes into memory and we always bring it out uh, and remember it all the time. Uh, whereas when we hear somebody says something good, uh, we don't really believe it very often. We wonder what's going on. Uh, and the, 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 this research showed that you have to say the good things seven times as much uh, as the bad things for it to have the same impact, right? One negative and one positive. So this is how easily you forget all the good things. And this is what is so beautiful with someone like Ajahn Brahm. Ajahn Brahm is one of those few people in the world who remembers the good things. Yeah, he always remembers the good things. And this is one of the things that I'm finally, after being a monk for almost, how long do you think? Yeah. Almost 30 years. Yeah, you wouldn't believe it if you saw me, but actually it's true. It's kind of terrible that after 30 years you haven't gone any further. But anyway, that's kind of the reality of things. <laughs> so after 30 years, it's finally it is dawning on me how actually this actually is a very beautiful thing to do. Yeah, and I should also be doing more of it. Seeing the, listening to the positive things people are telling you, remembering the positive things from the past, bringing up all of these good things. Yeah, slowly, 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 as you do that, and you take, actually, if someone gives you a compliment or they say something nice or they kind of are caring or whatever, take it on board, yeah? Presumably they mean it, yeah? Maybe sometimes they don't, but very often they mean it, so why not take it on board? Wow, you said that, great, wonderful, thank you. You don't even have to say it, you just remember it in the future. Yeah? And if someone says something bad, well, that is when you can forget about it, yeah? <laughs> Why? Because very often people say something bad, they're just grumpy. They got out of bed on the wrong side or whatever it is, yeah? There's no real reason for saying anything bad. Let it go. Remember the good things. And this is what Ajahn Brahm does. And it's such a beautiful thing when I see that. And I realize the power of that and how important it is and how skewed we are always remembering the bad things. 
So the terminally ill person, yeah, good on you, good on you, dad, mom, daughter, son, husband, wife, whatever it is, yeah, remember all the things you have done. You have lived a good life, you've done all of these things, it's wonderful, yeah. It is hard in the world to be a good person. You have succeeded against the odds. Excellent, well done. Yeah, and then by just remembering those good things, we are building up beautiful mental qualities. And of course, if you die with good mental qualities, you're going to die peacefully, and you're also going to have a good destination after you pass away as a consequence of that. Yeah, so these are the things we need to remember when we are kind of on our deathbed. We have a terminal illness, things are kind of not looking too good. Yeah? And as we do that, we build up a positive mind state. And as the Buddha said, even though your body is sick, your mind can be healthy. And this is how you do that, how you avoid the illness of the body from infecting your mind as well. So this is how right view, right, can change your entire outlook and it can actually give you a positive idea about the future. And then, of course, when you're terminally ill, that is incredibly helpful to help you in this way. But what about the person who is looking after the terminally ill person? What should they do? Because that, again, may be more important, and I think sometimes that was actually what the question was about, even though it was phrased about the terminally ill person, I think it was some kind of transference going on. They're probably asking for themselves, yeah, why, what can I do? I'm actually, it's scary to see my relatives. It's painful to see my relatives in this situation. What should I do? And uh, I think one of the most important things that we should do when we are around people who are ill is to learn from the idea that this is a death contemplation. This is an opportunity to contemplate the reality of life. Yeah? This is another aspect of right view, to understand that death is always a potential, always a possibility. It may always be just around the corner. We don't know when it's going to happen. One of the great things about being a monk yeah, is that you get to, like, get to go to a lot of funeral ceremonies. Uh. Yeah, isn't that good? Uh? What do you think? Is that, is that good or is it bad? Uh? This is one of the great things about being a monk. You get go lots and lots of funeral services yeah, all the time. This is kind of one of the it, lots of contemplation of death. Most people think that funeral services are a terrible thing to go to, uh, but actually, no, it is a good reminder of the reality of life. Uh. And of course, when you go to a funeral service, sometimes you, know, you see the very young people, the babies die, sometimes the intermediate people die, sometimes the middle-aged, sometimes the old, you know, everyone, all kinds of sizes and genders and all kinds of ages, people die. And this is a very useful reminder of the reality of things. So when you have someone in your family who's terminally ill, they are giving you a gift of insight, a potential insight into the nature of life. Life is extraordinarily uncertain. And the more you feel that sense of uncertainty, the more you feel a sense of urgency. Now is the opportunity. Now is the chance to do what is right. Not next minute. Now. This very minute. Yeah. Now. Are you taking the opportunity now? <laughs> yeah. What, what does it feel like right now? What is the right attitude right now? It is the what you think, right? Because you're not saying anything or acting very much. It's how you think is the thing right now. Now is the time, not 
next minute or after you leave here, whatever. You start to feel the sense of urgency because life is so short. And if you want to have a good death, if you want to ensure that your future, whatever happens after you die, is going to be safeguarded and going to be safe, now is the time to do it. Yeah? Simple idea of right view and how it kind of gives you this opportunity to, um, when someone is dying, the opportunity to see things in the right way. So this is kind of right view. And of course, that right view means that you look after the person who is dying. It's a great opportunity to give service. Yeah, we take every opportunity that we have to give service in this world to do the right thing. And then the whole thing kind of comes together in this way. So these are just some of the ideas of how to deal with things when someone is terminally ill. I want to uh, move on a little bit because otherwise I'm going to be stuck on terminal illness for the rest of this talk. Um, but uh, that is uh, at least a little bit of background for you, whoever asked that question, uh, that you can reflect on a little bit to hopefully make the whole thing better and more spiritual as a consequence. Uh, I want to talk about um, uh, one more thing before I go on to kind of more spiritual qualities. Uh, and this is the idea of depression. Uh, yeah? Depression, mental illnesses of various kinds are a big problem in our society, I understand. A lot of people feel that things are difficult and as a consequence they have all kinds of anxieties and negative thoughts. Yeah? And uh, the, the good thing, the good news is that there is a way out of this too, through right view. The reason why we get depressed really comes ultimately back to the idea of some kind of wrong view, looking at the world in the wrong way. And that kind of makes things very hopeful, right? So if you find that you sometimes get depressed, you sometimes get sad, or maybe you have a lot of depression, there is a way out of this. And not only is there a way out of this, but actually this is a sign that you are not actually understanding the Buddha's teachings properly. This is a sign that now you can grow in right view, which is at the very foundation of the spiritual path. So it's a sign that you're looking at things in the wrong way. Now is the opportunity for you to see things differently. And if you think about depressions or sadnesses and all these negative things in this way, it becomes an opportunity yeah, to change your outlook. You can make something very difficult into something positive. Isn't that kind of neat? I like that idea. It's kind of neat. Of course, if you are very depressed, you may not be able to do this because you're just too depressed. But you know, if you can, it's a great way of doing it. So how do we do this? And uh, it is quite simple. Why do people get depressed? Well, one reason people get depressed these days a lot uh, is because things seem to be going so badly in the world. Uh, yeah? There's so many problems in the world, so many things seem to be going wrong. There's wars, there's climate change, there's refugees, there is, uh, you know, everything seems to be this asteroids kind of getting ready to hit the earth or whatever. There's so many things uh, uh, seemingly to go, that seem to go wrong. Uh, and so people feel that their future uh, is at stake. Uh, what is going to happen to the future if everything goes wrong? Do I have a future? What about my children? What about my grandchildren if you are a grandparent? Maybe the future is stuffed. And if the future is stuffed, maybe being depressed is a good idea. <laughs> but uh, this is the wrong way of thinking about things. Because from a Buddhist point of view, in fact from any kind of sensible point of view, your future is not created by the world outside. Yeah, it is not where the world outside goes that really decides your future. 
Yes, your future will be affected a little bit by the world outside. It is true, because that is unavoidable. But the majority of what affects our future has nothing to do with the world outside. It has to do with your world inside. That is where your future really is created. Yeah, because if you build up positive inner qualities, it means that you are much more resilient. You can deal with the world outside. This is where you create real happiness. If you have happiness in your heart within, and you are less, that means you are less affected by the problems outside because you have a resource inside of you that you can use to deal with the problems outside. So our ability to deal with the world, yeah, our future is actually created by internal states of mind and not so much by the ex external states of mind. Yeah? This is kind of very, very important insight to understand the Buddhist idea. And this relates, of course, also to the idea of things like kamma, for example, yeah? about building up good qualities that you then bring with you into the future, and then you feel them in the future, enables you to withstand the problems of the world. And this is a very powerful thing. I will talk a little bit more about meditation towards the end of this talk. But you can see right now how this kind of comes back to your meditation practice. Because if we don't build up the world by... Uh, uh, if, if the world is not so important, the external world is not so important uh, for how we experience the world, uh, if that is not so important, then you don't think about that world so much. If that world is kind of irrelevant for how the future is going to look, then you can let go of trying to sort that world out. So much our thinking mind is about trying to sort out the world, resolving problems, thinking about the pleasures we're going to have, worrying about all kinds of things. But the moment you understand, actually, that world is not really where it is at. Where my future is at is about the qualities I have within the moment you get that, uh, you stop thinking about all of those things and instead you become peaceful right here and now. You develop the compassion of the heart, you develop the kindness within, because that is how the future is constructed. Uh. And we know that that is true for this life, uh, because our ability to deal with the future depends on our resilience, as I said, within our resources within, uh, and we certainly know that is true for uh, future, whatever we go after we die, because that all we then have when we go on into the future are the qualities in our heart, the qualities that we have built up in our mind. That is what we take with us into the future. This is such a hopeful idea. Yeah, It means that we don't need to worry all that much about the world. It means that we can look at things in an entirely different way. It is how I live that really matters, not so much where the world is going. And because we have very little control over where the world is going, it is a very positive and hopeful sign. We do, however, have some kind of control, some degree of control over how we live our life. And again, that is why it's so hopeful. So this is one way of helping you to overcome the maybe sadness and grief and depression you sometimes may have about where the world is heading here. Another reason why people get depressed is that they feel that they are Hopeless, yeah, I'm not getting my act together, it doesn't really work, I'm supposed to be doing this, I'm not doing that, and all of these kind of things. It is in my power to create my life, but I'm not really creating my life properly, and so I should be depressed as a consequence. Yeah, it's either the world, or it's kind of we are depressed about ourselves, it's kind of the other side. But this again comes back to the thing I was saying before, 
the idea that we are not really in charge of our own lives, yeah? that actually the sense of self is often an illusion. It is something that uh, uh, the feeling that we are in control has to do with the foundational delusion of, non, of uh, a self inside of us. And again, it comes back to the idea of understanding our conditioning. We are conditioned to be who we are. And because we are conditioned to be who we are, we need to accept ourselves. This is me here. I'm okay like this. Yeah, this is my starting point. I have to be okay like this because this is what I am. I have no choice. Yeah, and let me start with this to be honest with myself, to be accept myself for who I who I am, and then develop myself from that foundation. Yeah, that is kind of the hopeful thing. Okay, I am who I am. I can't really change what has happened to me and who I am. Whatever kind of strange thoughts I have or whatever, this is just coming from the past. It is okay because it has to be okay. This is acceptance. And then, once you accept yourself, then you can start to look forward. How can I change? What can I do differently? How can I practice this path in a good way? Yeah, has to do again with the idea of self-acceptance, self-forgiveness, self-understanding, self-compassion. This idea of self-compassion is such a beautiful idea. Understanding the limits of what we can do in the world, understanding that the world is inherently problematic, and then you start to have compassion and kindness for yourself. Very powerful idea, the idea of self-compassion. And then from that also comes the idea of the limits of what you are able to do in life. Yeah, we don't have that much power to make changes in our life. We don't have much power to kind of fundamentally alter who we are or to change our trajectory in life or whatever. All of these things are very limited. And because we don't have so much power, it means again we become more accepting and we become less self-fault-finding and then we are on the right track. So that is a little bit about dealing with uh, uh, depression in a positive way, through the idea of right view, thinking about the world in the right way. Yeah? And as you do that, things come into balance again. Uh, it's beautiful, this idea that problems in life can be dealt with in a way that also enhances the spiritual path at the same time. Uh, it's a very kind of powerful insight, I reckon. Uh, but now, what about the spiritual path itself? I want to see how that also is affected by the idea of right view. And the first thing I want to talk a little bit about is how do we find a good spiritual teacher, for example. And the reason I say this is that there are lots of people in the world who have had bad spiritual teachers and they end up getting very disappointed as a consequence of having had a bad spiritual teacher. The teacher turns out to be dodgy, to do all kinds of things, to you know, commit abuse for the students, etc., etc. Or they just turn out not to be what you thought they were. They turn back to lay life, they get married, and you wonder who was this person that you had all this confidence and faith in in the first place. And I've seen people becoming completely devastated by this. Yeah, completely, because they had so much confidence, so much faith. And then they kind of throw away the whole Buddhist path, they throw away everything, yeah, because one person turned out to be a dodgy character. Yeah. So, but remember, yeah, if someone turns out to be a dodgy character, again, the reason why you didn't see that in the first place is because you had wrong view. Yeah. You weren't able to judge that person correctly. 
And because you weren't able to judge that person correctly, it means that this is an opportunity for you to understand better what enlightenment means. What does awakening mean? What does it mean that someone has profound spiritual qualities? Yeah, it gives you a new opportunity. So you should feel, maybe in the end, maybe not straight away, but in the end we should feel grateful for these chances. Yeah, Because it shows up our misunderstanding of reality, misunderstanding of what was going on. So how do people often choose their kind of spiritual teachers? Uh, and one of the reasons why you know, people often choose a spiritual path is because they feel that their life is suffering or they don't, maybe they are lacking a sense of self-worth or whatever it might be. Uh, so very often people choose a spirit, spiritual teacher because of how they affirm them as a person. Uh, yeah? They make you feel good about yourself. Uh, they make you feel great. Uh, and because the spiritual teacher makes you feel great, you follow them for that reason. Yeah, and, of, and so the spiritual teacher always tells you what you want to hear, they make you feel happy, etc., etc. And then, as a consequence, you become a disciple of this teacher. But very often that is not necessarily a sign of great wisdom. It's a sign of kindness. Yeah? It's a sign of kind of superficial kindness anyway. But it doesn't necessarily have any connection to deep spiritual insights or deep spiritual understanding. Yeah? And a real spiritual teacher, yeah, someone who really has your well-being at heart, doesn't always praise you, doesn't always support your ego, doesn't always kind of do the thing that is exactly right. Sometimes when someone is always kind, it can come from weakness. Yeah? It can come from a need to be liked, for example, and these kind of things. It is not necessarily a sign of awakening at all. A real spiritual teacher, if you read the suttas and you see the way the Buddha was, if you see some of the great spiritual masters around the world, they will also tell you when you go wrong. They will tell you sometimes about your weaknesses. Yeah, this beautiful verse in the Dhammapada that when someone points out a weakness in your character, they're pointing out a treasure for you. It's a treasure because it will allow you to go beyond that weakness and actually develop the spiritual path further. So this is often the sign. Yeah? So we should be careful when we look for a spiritual teacher that we actually look for real spiritual qualities and not to someone who affirms us and who tells us that we are okay, we are a good person or whatever. Because if we do that, it is too shallow. And then we should look deeper. We should go behind, you know, look, look at this person in a deeper way as well. We should look at the peace. We should look at their, how they are around other people. We should look at whether they have much of an ego. We should look at whether they take the Buddha as their teacher, just like we do, or whether they kind of put in themselves forward. Yeah, one of the beautiful things to me about Buddhism has always been that everyone takes the Buddha as their final teacher. And that means that there is like a kind of fairly flat, yeah, flat kind of structure between everyone. There isn't this kind of big imbalance between monastics or lay people or whatever, because everyone ultimately takes the Buddha as the teacher. And this is the final piece of advice when we're looking for a teacher in the world, is to remember that never place too much confidence or faith in any single teacher. And this is why in Buddhism we have the idea of putting your confidence and your faith in the triple gem, the Buddha, Dhamma and the Sangha. Because you have 
confidence in something much larger than any kind of individual. You have confidence in the awakening of the Buddha himself, and you have confidence that his teachings are very powerful and have the ability to give rise to awakening now. And yes, there will be teachers that you have more or less confidence in, but not too much, not so much that if they turn out to be bad, it destroys your entire spiritual path. Yeah, you understand where confidence ultimately needs to be placed. So if you ever find that you feel a bit disappointed by a teacher or things aren't going right, yeah, there is another opportunity to have right view. Yay, my teacher is dodgy here. <laughs> so this is kind of this makes things much more hopeful, right? So you're kind of looking at things slightly differently here. So uh, now so this is about finding the right teacher. Yes, yeah? so this is kind of very closely related to right view because a teacher like the Buddha is someone who helps you access right, that right view. And of course the next step in spirituality very often is the idea of morality. So how does morality, how is that supported by right view? Yeah, this is actually very interesting. Now I think we get into the real meat of this talk. So forget everything I said so far. Now this is where it gets really interesting here. Yeah? So what, how is morality supported by right view? If I ask you, how easy is it to be kind in your daily life? How easy is it to always do the right thing, to live a moral life? You would probably say, generally speaking, I'm able to be kind, I'm able to be moral, but actually all the time is really, really difficult. Yeah? I always fail occasionally because of these kind of people, especially around that particular person. Oh, I always fail around that person, I always get upset or whatever. You know what it's like? Certain people kind of trigger us. Trigger is one of these kind of words that trigger us in a certain way, right? And then we kind of get upset or whatever. So the question then is, how can we enhance our ability to be kind at all times? Remember the Buddhist idea of sila, the Buddhist idea of morality, is not just about avoiding the bad things, it's about actually doing good, thinking in the right way, speaking in the right way. That is when we really get a very powerful foundation of sila. Yeah, so how can we enhance it even more, to be kind all the time, every time you think a blooming thought, yeah, you can actually be kind in your thinking mind. And I had a man come to me recently at Bodhinana Monastery, and he had precisely this problem. He said, oh, Bante, well, you know, I, I try to be kind, do all the things, but I haven't got enough mindfulness. I haven't got enough awareness, right? Before I know it, kind of my mind, I do all kind of bad things. I get angry. I get angry so easily here. To me, he seems like this really nice guy, but he tells me he gets angry very easily. Okay, I don't know. But anyway, so, and so the problem is precisely this idea that awareness is the critical thing. That is where we go wrong. So many people think that the answer to being kind is that you have enough awareness in daily life, so you're always aware of what you're doing. That is the critical thing. But actually you do that and you actually find out you haven't got that much awareness anywhere in daily life. Yeah? And if you have it, your awareness is on the wrong thing, you get angry anyway because you don't really know what's going on. So awareness actually often doesn't have the power it takes to make you really kind. There's something else that is more important. And that something else is right view. Thinking about things in the right way. That is the critical thing. If you 
understand fully the danger yeah, there is in doing the wrong thing, speaking in the wrong way, thinking in the wrong way. If you really understand what is going on, you will never do the wrong thing again. This is why someone who's gone a very long way on the Buddhist path, people we call things like stream enterers, who are on the way to awakening, this is why they never really go wrong in morality, because they have understood the teachings fully, yeah, through experiential insight, and so they actually don't make any mistakes anymore. Or they may make a mistake, but they, uh, they will confess and kind of own up to it very quickly and go beyond it. And uh, the way of thinking about this, uh, yeah, is imagine yourself, uh, you are about to cross the street. Uh, there's no zebra crossing, yeah, no zebra crossing, there's no lights, uh, there's no kind of green man or green woman or whatever they have these days. Uh, there's nothing there to kind of help you across, it's just a street, yeah, and you're just going to walk across the street. Uh, so what do you do when you come to the street? There's, you know, this is a street, so it's in the city. Uh, what do you do? Well, what you do is you look left, no, this is left, sorry, this left, you look left, and then you look right, yeah, before you walk into the street. Is anyone here who doesn't look left or right, or just walk straight into the street? Okay, someone who is really attached to the mobile phone, sometimes they do that, just walk straight and say, the mobile phone is more important. <laughs> but if you're not that attached to a mobile phone, you will look left and right. Even if you're attached to a mobile phone, you might kind of give a quick glance to the left and right before you walk into the street. How much awareness do you need beforehand to look left and right as you're crossing this? Do you need to have lots of awareness? Or will you remember it regardless? Even the most unaware person will usually look left and right before they cross the street. You don't have to be a Buddhist who has meditated for 10 years to remember to look left and right. It kind of comes naturally. Why does it happen? And the reason why it happens is because the memory, the knowledge that this is dangerous, makes you look left and right. And this brings us to this other idea of what mindfulness is. When we talk about mindfulness in Buddhism, it is not just about awareness. It is also about memory, knowing what you're supposed to do. And so right view is what informs that memory. Right view is what tells the memory, now there is an issue. And then the memory comes by itself, because it is very deeply ingrained inside of you that crossing a street is dangerous. Cars are bigger than human beings. Yeah? So they're going to kill you if you kind of just walk into that street. Yeah? So you don't do it for that, that reason. You know it very deep down. It's obvious. And this is how it works. If you understand fully the danger of wrong conduct and the power of good conduct, you will always look left and right before you speak, before you act, even before you think. Am I doing the right thing? Is this going to work? Can I do better? Can I be even kinder? Can I be more compassionate in my response? All of these things come out naturally because you know the danger. In fact, I would say it is far more dangerous to act or speak or think in the wrong way than it is to walk into that street. If you walk into a street, you might die. Yeah, okay, big deal, right? You die and then you kind of get reborn and you carry on somewhere else. At least you haven't destroyed your future. Yeah, it's not like you destroy your future, but if you do acts that are bad and you encourage that and you don't stop yourself from doing these things, Actually, what you're doing is you're destroying your future. Do you really want to destroy your future? 
If you could die tomorrow, is now the right time to do what is good, what is right, so as to build up those inequalities that will enable you to have a good life in this life and also what happens after you die? You start to understand the danger. Then is when you act. Then you become that person who is crossing the street. Every time you speak, every time you act, even every time you think. And the way to do this is to remember you can die so easily. This is part of the right view. We don't know when our death is going to come. The way to remember this is to remember every time you do something bad, you are reinforcing the habits of bad conduct. And that will mean that you have even more bad conduct down the track because you have reinforced that. Now is your chance to go against that bad habit. Yeah? Every time you do that, you're letting yourself down because you are giving yourself grief and problems in the future by doing what is wrong now. And in the long run, in the end of the day, if you do something bad now, then when you die, that bad action may come back and haunt you when you die. And then it will have consequences for where you go on after you pass away. So the whole thing gives you a sense of urgency, a sense of now is the opportunity. The opportunity, as I said before, is not next minute or next second. It's actually right now. How can I be kind right in this very moment? That is really what it comes down to. This is how you have morality through right view. Awareness is not as important as right view because it is right view that informs the memory, informs, reminds you of how you're supposed to live your life. See the power of right view? It's amazing, isn't it? It's something that people actually don't really understand very often. And if we understood it, we would spend more time reflecting on right view, reinforcing that right view, changing our perceptions, understanding things better in line with the way the Buddha saw things. And as you do that, this is how you turn out as a far better, kinder, more moral person as a consequence. So spend your time on right view. How should I look at the world? How should I think about people? How should I think about my own life? These are the really significant questions. <laughs> what did the Buddha say about these things? How can I align my ideas with the way the Buddha saw things? And as you do that, things start to fall into place. Yeah, right view is the power behind the throne here, the power behind everything, uh, sorting everything out in our life. Uh. But uh, right view goes even further here. Uh, and I'm going to come to the last topic. I'm going to talk about this very briefly. Uh, um, and this is the idea of meditation practice itself. Uh. It's actually one of those very fascinating things when you read the suttas of the Buddha. He says that meditation practice is founded on two things. It is founded on sila, which is morality. Just talked about that, yeah? So the sila part is now kind of being developed because we hopefully we have that little bit of right view and then the sila comes into place. But meditation is also founded on right view itself. Yeah. Why is that the case? Well, I've been talking about this quite a bit already, but maybe just to reinforce a little bit what I've been saying. So when you sit down to meditate, one of the biggest problems of meditation practice is that we think about the world. And that world that we think about is the world of family, of work, of pleasures, or happinesses and joys in the world outside, problems that we have to resolve, issues that we have to figure out. This is what we often think about in our meditation. 
But actually, and the reason we think about these things is because we think that we are going to create the future by thinking about these things, by resolving our problems. We're going to make a future that is better. By thinking about the sensual pleasures, it will enable us to enjoy those pleasures afterward because now we're kind of building up the idea how we're going to enjoy things later on. And so we are trying to create the future by thinking about the world outside. But as I've been saying, that is not how you create the future. Yeah, that is just how you keep on going, this world of the five senses, endlessly going, 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 more and more problems, more of the same, not really getting anywhere at all. If you really want to get somewhere, if you really want to change yourself, if you want to create the future again, you do that by how you live your life, by your inner qualities, by the quality of your heart, by your compassion, by your kindness, by your love, by your peace by your ability to deal with the problems of life in this way, from a spiritual point of view, that is where you build up the future. Yeah? So that means that once you see that, you meditate, you don't worry so much about the world. You understand that the world is an endless running around, always kind of seeking for things and never finding satisfaction. This is the problem with the five senses. There is no true satisfaction in the five senses. There's just more of the same coming after and after and after. And we've been doing this for lifetimes already. There is no solution. There is no goal. There is no end point in the world of the five senses. So let it go. That is not where you find contentment and satisfaction, anything useful. You find it by becoming peaceful in meditation. This is how you let go. This is how you allow yourself to kind of find peace in meditation. The other thing which comes from right view in meditation is the understanding that doing, activity, agency, all this movement inside is painful. Yeah, whenever we act inside, whenever we use our will, whenever we do these things, actually it is a kind of pain. And the way to see this as a kind of pain is to compare what happens when you become peaceful in meditation to the mind, which is very active, always doing things. And you will see the peaceful mind is far more conducive to happiness, joy, contentment. It's almost by definition it is more contentment. Yeah, more conducive to these things than the active mind. And the reason why we usually want to be active uh, is that we are fooled by the ego. The ego wants to be active because the ego identifies with the doing. That is where the problem is. Uh. Yeah? So we need to again see with the right view what is really going on. Is the ego always fooling us? Is the ego maybe the real problem, the real thing at stake here? Or we, do we really understand what is going on? And you start to understand after a while that actually this peace in meditation is far superior to all the craving, all the activity, all the doing in the world. In fact, some of the highest kind of happiness that you can have is complete peace in meditation practice. In the suttas, yeah, the word of the Buddha, there is a beautiful word for this. It is called the Upasama Sukha. Yeah, upasama means peace, and Sukha means happiness. And the Upasama Sukha in the suttas is almost, it is basically on the level of enlightenment and awakening itself. Yeah, when you start to become really wise, when you start to see things really according to reality, you understand that peace is the hap highest happiness you can possibly have as a person. And the more you understand that, the more you lean in that direction, 
the more when you sit down, you let go of the doing, you let go of the activity, because you understand it's just one whole bunch of suffering. That's really all it is. Uh, let go of the ego, because the ego is a blooming nightmare here. Ego is a problem, yeah? This thing that we carry with us, uh, that we sometimes build up and we think is very useful, actually no, it is the opposite. Uh, it is a problem because it creates activity, it creates craving, it creates doing, uh, and that is why it doesn't work. Uh. So uh, the whole point of this talk uh, is just to point out to you that one of the most important things and undervalued things on the Buddhist practice and path uh, is the idea of right view. When we start to see the world in the right way, what happens is that it enables us to transcend the suffering in life. Even if you break a leg, certainly if people die in your life, certainly if the world is going wrong, it helps you to transcend all of these problems. Right view is the very foundation for the whole spiritual path. When you have right view, the path kind of works by itself. Yeah, you don't have to do anything anymore. It kind of takes over on its own. And so that's why in the suttas, right view is at the foundation. The rest of the spiritual path happens as a consequence of that right view. So what I would urge you to do is put more emphasis on the idea of right view. Come back to the teachings of the Buddha. How did the Buddha actually understand reality? Yeah. What does rebirth mean? What does it mean that I may have to continue existing after I die? What does that mean for my conduct? What does that mean for my long-term investment into what I should really look for in this world? All of these things. And as you start to uncover the Buddha's message, and as it starts to make sense to you, your whole trajectory in life starts to change. Yeah? And then you are on the path to what? The path to less suffering, the path to more happiness, uh, and eventually you also become this beautiful person in the world uh, who becomes a kind of a beacon for other people around you as well. Uh, and then everything is uh, pretty good. Uh. <laughs> so anyway, that's the talk for tonight. Uh. All right, so... Uh, are there any uh, questions or comments by anyone? This is your uh, opportunity before we take questions from outside of the center. We have one person over here, Bill. Yeah. Thanks for the talk, Arjun. Um, what was the differences between Arjun Sujato's translations versus Bhikkhu Bodhi's in the new, in the Pali Canon? All right. Yeah. So the, uh, the difference is uh, that um, I think the philosophy of translation is slightly different. So one of the Bhikkhu uh, uh, Bodhi, he has, uh, focuses a lot on um, kind of, uh, he's not so, he uses language that sometimes can be a bit complicated. He was a philosopher before he became a Buddhist monk. Yeah, sometimes you have to have a dictionary to understand what he's saying because it's a bit complicated. Uh, uh, also, he, he leans a lot on the com comment commentaries uh, yeah, to, to translate. Uh, and so he, uh, he, his kind of main thing was to get it very accurate and according to the traditional understanding of things. Uh, Bhante Sujato's translation was more about um, making it accessible to people, yeah? being able to actually, people can read it easily. A lot of people these days who read the suttas in English, they actually have English as a second language, right? And if you have English as a second language, well, actually, it's often much more difficult to read the suttas and understand what is going on. So you need to have a fairly simple vocabulary, fairly short sentences and whatever. But uh, both of the translations, I would say, are very accurate. 
Sometimes they are a bit different, and that is where it gets interesting when the different who is right and who is wrong. Yeah, and then you have to kind of find out for yourself. Uh, but uh, so I would uh, I would recommend both of them actually. I wouldn't really uh, you know so they're both really good. And the, uh, the good thing about Bantasudrato's translation is that they're available online. Uh, yeah, all of them are online, so you don't actually have to pay for anything to uh, to get to read them. Uh, yeah. All right. Anyone else like to ask anything? We have over here. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for um, coming back to Perth and giving us the talk. Um, you are welcome. I just have <laughs> a question about the journey from where we are. Mm -hmm. So, although um, we sort of know that conditioning is there and we think there's a self, it's so easy from the five senses to get a small amount of joy when you are suffering. Mm. Like I've broken my foot. <laughs> so I'm going through ah. some of the things you were talking about okay. in my All family right. and yep. me. So yep. when you're suffering, you tend to look for the five senses to be satisfied mm. because mm. you just want to come out of that suffering. Mm. It's very difficult. Mm. And what, what would, I know I meditate sometimes, but how do you turn away from the five senses? All right when your mind is still suffering. Yeah. yeah. So the, uh, the Buddha actually talks about this in the suttas, and he says that for the ordinary person, if they are suffering, yeah, they will turn to the pleasures of the senses, yeah, to find the relief from that suffering. Yeah. So it is natural that that should happen. And don't feel bad about that. It's okay to enjoy the five-sense world, right? Uh, but enjoy it in moderation. Enjoy it wisely. Enjoy it responsibly. That is really the answer. You don't oppress other people through that enjoyment. I'm sure you don't do that anyway, but just, you know, this is kind of the, the general way of thinking about it. So do, don't be too concerned about that. Yeah? And then when you, kind of, you feel a bit better again, you also come back to meditation at the same time. Uh, so the most important thing to support the meditation is not whether we enjoy the five sense world a little bit, uh, yeah, it is okay to enjoy that, uh, but that we all understand its limitations, that when we come back to meditation again, uh, we are still able to let go of that a little bit. Uh, you know, the biggest problem is if you sit and you think about the five sense world, oh, you know, you go on retreat and you think about, oh, I wish I could have dinner tonight, a kind of dinner because I ate precepts, you know. And if you think about food all the time while you're meditating, well, then it's not going to work, yeah? That is really the problem. So that is kind of where the issue arises. But if you don't do that, it means that you may very well be okay. So find that balance. And it's very important that we don't make the Buddha's path into some kind of terrible path of torture, because that is not really what it is meant to be so uh, enjoy those little pleasures when you are suffering. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sandra wants to ask a question. Uh. Um, yes, I, I missed your book launch, but what? congratulations, because <laughs> I was late. But I'm very okay. much looking forward to us reading it as part of the Kalyana okay. Friendship Group. Exactly. That wasn't my question, no, it wasn't even a question. So you talked a bit about, you know, how we um, have right view when we're talking to someone who's terminally ill or we're a member of a family or a friend, a loved one, supporting that person. So I've had a curious incident this week where an older lady on my street, her husband has died. They've been together 63 years, that's a long time. Mm. 
And she is very much a devout Catholic. And so sitting and listening, comforting her, I, I find that if I think about the Buddhist path, there's a lot of comfort mm. in the notion of rebirth. Like, oh, this is another chapter, opening and closing. It's not the end. Mm. I found myself a bit lost for words <laughs> when I was sitting with my Catholic friend. Yeah. And I couldn't, yeah, I just thought, mm. well, that is, you know, it's, I don't know a lot about Catholicism, but I know there's the notion of heaven and hell and sin. And I found it curious, and I just wondered if you could talk a bit about that, like how, you know, how you comfort someone when they're very much subscribed to a theistic type religion. Yeah. And Buddhism is so much, it's more middle way, it's yeah. got the notion of, well, the truth of rebirth and... Yeah, it's yeah. a very different scene. Good, yeah, no, absolutely. It is very difficult, and uh, sometimes uh, you know we have to. Obviously, we have to be careful first of all not to kind of foist too many kind of Buddhist ideas onto other people because that will turn them off as well. Yeah. But uh, I think a lot of these things are just kind of psychology. You know, a lot of them are just kind of common sense. Okay. Uh, even if you are a Catholic, even if you believe in a soul and you believe in God, you can also see that we are conditioned. I mean, in Buddhism, the conditioning is much more thorough, much more complete, because there is no soul or self or whatever. But I think everyone in the world would recognize how conditioned we are as human beings. Yeah, it's kind of obvious. So even if there is a soul, 90% is going to be conditioning. Yeah, and the soul maybe give the tiny bit of space, but not too, <laughs> too much space, right? And because it's obvious, it kind of we can see that in our life. You know, I eat, I like Norwegian food. Most people think Norwegian food is terrible. They think it's disgusting. They come to Norway, they don't give me that. Kind of give me some kind of nice fish and chips or whatever. I mean, we eat, we like the food from our own culture, and it's kind of natural. I mean, we are very, very conditioned beings, and the more we understand ourselves, the more obvious that is the case. So that, I think that is still true. Yeah, it is still kind of the the, the reality. And uh, also the same thing with the, the good qualities that we have, right? Uh, I mean, whether you're Catholic or a Buddhist, if you remember your good qualities, you're going to feel good about yourself, uh, yeah? And it's going to be helpful there. So I think we can use some of the, uh, the, the same kind of uh, ideas. Uh, uh, and uh, I think because it's just kind of common sense and kind of natural human psychology, I would say. Uh, maybe, uh, yeah? <laughs> Try it and see what happens. Uh, okay. <laughs> Hi, um, <clears throat> I wanted to know, uh, with uh, knowing the suttas really well, whether you can pick out exactly the right views and make a list of them, <laughs> or, or whether it has to be discerned. I, I, the, uh, I mean, there are lists of right view, you know, there are things like there is rebirth, there is the result uh, and fruit of good and bad actions, uh, you know, there is... Uh, there are beings in the world who have right knowledge and teach rebirth, these kind of things. In other words, not people like the Buddha. Huh? Yeah, these are kind of listed as right view. 
But the right view is really the whole kind of tipitika, really. The whole, not, not tipitika, I, sh I should keep some of it out. The whole kind of four nikayas, the long discourse, the midnight discourse, the connected discourse, the numerical discourse of the Buddha. So basically the whole word of the Buddha is really right view in a sense. Uh, so, uh, you know, and foundational things like impermanence of all things, yeah, unreliability of all things in the world. Uh, that's a very important right view. Uh, the idea of impermanence is easy to understand. Yeah, it's really obvious. You look around you, everything is always crumbling away and changing. It's happening uh, in the world at large. It's happening on the personal level where people becoming ill and dying. It's happening to you all the time. It's easy to see. And I think one of the things we should I would really recommend people to focus the most on if they're going to have more right view. Focus on the idea of impermanence. Uh, it rectifies so, in a big way, our misunderstanding of how the world works. Uh, and with that idea of impermanence comes also the uh, idea of the difference between suffering and happiness, right? Uh, uh, because that kind of comes with impermanence. All we need to do is really reflect on impermanence. Okay, people are going to die. What does that mean? Well, it means that if I cling too much, it's going to cause suffering. I should develop my spiritual path or whatever, right? The kind of these things build on each other. The idea of non-self also is largely derived from the idea of impermanence. So impermanence is a very, very important foundational idea of right view. So just by reflecting on that, you're going to go a long way. But if you enjoy reading the suttas, the word of the Buddha, I would just... I would recommend you to read quite widely in the suttas. And as you do that, you start to get a feeling for what that right view is. You start building it up. Look at some of the beautiful similes of the Buddha. Contemplate the idea of rebirth. The idea of rebirth is incredibly significant. You can't really overstate how important it is. And if you understand it in the right way, it will have a tremendous effect on how you live your life. You become a far better person simply through the act of remembering rebirth, uh, because it gives a broader, much, much wider scope of what life is about. Uh, this life right here becomes just a small little part of something much more enormous. Uh, I don't know if you have any, uh, had any connection with uh, near-death experiences, and people have had that, and you've seen some of those videos, or read some of the books about that. Uh, that is extremely fascinating, what happens to people who have these experiences. Uh, they come back afterwards, and they are changed. Uh, yeah, they have become more kind, they have become more compassionate, they're no longer as caught up in all the, uh, uh, you know, the silliness of the world and all these kind of things. They are come back as far, far better people afterwards. And so these are the kind of issues, yeah, reflect on them again and again and start to see and you will start to change the way you think about your life. Uh, and uh, yeah. Did I even answer your question? Huh? It, it did, yes. Yeah, okay, that's good, and, I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, another question, if I, if I may. Quick I, one. It's up to Bill, Bill is the boss. So Bill, please ask Bill kind, nicely and see what he says. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he says, <yeah. laughs> okay. Good, yeah. Um, yeah. What can people do, as, as a monk, maybe have some um, suggestions of what people can do during the day to increase their happiness? Uh, be kind. Thank you. Good. <laughs> yeah. um, just on the idea of right view, um, 
in, in, in a dichotomy that suggests there's something called wrong view, or is right view having no judgment about view? Ah, okay. Um, uh, no, not really, because there is truth and there is non-truth. Uh, yeah, there is reality and there is counter to reality. You know, if you go out of here and your car is parked on the left side, but you think your car is on the right and you walk to the right, uh, it's going to have consequences for you. Yeah? You won't find your car here. Yeah? So right view matters. Uh, you can see that obviously straight away in very ordinary things like that. Uh, it also matters on the spiritual path. Uh, there is a way the world works and there is a way the world does not work. There either is rebirth or there is not rebirth. There either is continuation after you die or there is not continuation after you die. Yeah? And so there is such a thing as, uh, as, as right view, but there is degrees of right view, right? Uh, so you may start off not believing in rebirth, uh, and then you get a little bit of confidence in the idea of rebirth, uh, and eventually you may be convinced. In fact, you may have insight into rebirth itself, and you may know that there is rebirth. Uh, and then right view is on a continuum between completely wrong view and completely right view. And most of us, especially if we have been on the spiritual path of Buddhist for a while, we are, you know, struggling along that continuum somewhere. Yeah. So one of the things that we want to do is we want to strengthen that right view as much as we possibly can. Yeah? And this is really what uh, the practice is about, contemplating the content of the word of the Buddha, um, sorting out our perceptions, making our perceptions and thoughts more closely aligned with the idea of right view. Yeah. So uh, the only thing you could say about... Um, views, you know, about giving up, as you say, the difference between bad, you know, wrong or right view or whatever, kind of collapsing it. The only thing you could say is that when you become, come to the very end of the path, uh, you don't hold on to the views anymore. Uh, yeah, you don't grasp them. That's the difference. Uh, uh, because they become internalized. Uh, you know the way the world is. You don't need to grasp them anymore. That is the real difference. Uh, and so if someone who is fully enlightened, they will not argue about with you because they feel they know, yeah? Usually the reason we argue is because of our own uncertainty, our own kind of, uh, you know, um, lack of knowledge very often. Uh, so that is, I would say, maybe the only distinction there. Uh, you okay with that? Uh, yeah. yeah? Okay, excellent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Please, uh, yeah. Uh, I have a problem with people. Um, it's my own wrong view, uh, you know, not right view, I suppose, but... I just find it really difficult to listen to trivial conversation. Yeah. Like people trying to make conversation for the sake of saying something. Yeah. And even even it can be repetitive, you can and um it's just like there are so many things that are just not really worth saying, like it would be better to have silence. Yeah, I, you know, I uh, I can relate to that. <laughs> I would agree. I mean, one of the things, that, this is actually one of the things of right speech in Buddhism, yeah, is the idea of not kind of talking, uh, what you call idle chatter or frivolous talk or whatever. Yeah. And so that it makes a lot of sense. And uh, what I would say is have a bit of compassion for people because people often need that, yeah. They need to say something. They don't know what, maybe they feel insecure. We all feel insecure sometimes. Everyone feels in insecure sometimes. And sometimes we feel that with uh, talking, chatting, trying to connect with people, fumbling around a little bit, you know, we don't know what we're doing very often. And sometimes give people the benefit of the doubt. They're just trying to reach out to you. They're just trying to be kind in their own way. And they may not know any other way of doing, doing this. Yeah? And I think it's very useful to always remember the frailty of humanity. We are all a bit frail. We're all uncertain. We're all unsure sometimes. And very often, you know, you can see that 
we, we get angry if we get rejected or get angry if we don't get understood in the right way. All of that is a sign of our own uncertainty within her. And so uh, it is, uh, you know, it is difficult. I, sometimes I, I, I try to look at people and I, you know, I, <laughs> I try to do things that I, I know that people often want to have contact and they want to kind of, but they often don't dare to say, especially when you're a monk, they're really afraid of you and they kind of, you know, look in a different direction, they walk past you. Actually, they want to talk to you, but actually looking in the other way. And so sometimes you kind of say things like good morning or hello, or you try to do something simple like that to kind of uh, sometimes break the ice a little bit or whatever. Anyway, yeah, so I know where we're coming from, but it's kind of getting the balance right, which can be hard sometimes, so, yeah. All right, everyone, so I'm going to take a few questions from uh, outside of the, uh, here. And this is from Richard Vezaga from Bolivia. Well, that's really cool. Hello, Bolivia. It's really nice that we have people from really around the world. It's kind of astonishing. Yeah. So, um, uh, very nice to have you here. Um, about forgiving the past, isn't it good to recycle the past right? Okay. Uh, to recycle the past right. Trying to learn of the past is negative, I think. Knowing that what I have done is bad is enough, right? So learning it, if you have done something bad. Well, I, th I think the most important thing about uh, learning from the past is just to make uh, a determination or, or make it clear that you don't want to do it again in the future. Uh, yeah, This is a very powerful thing that you find in the... Uh, Vinaya, Pitika, or the way that we deal with things as monastics. First of all, you confess, and then you say, I determine not to do it again in the future. I will restrain myself in the future. And that idea of determining to restrain yourself is very powerful because it kind of, when you make that determination, it's almost like you are able to forgive yourself much more powerfully, precisely because you're not going to do it again in the future. But if you know that you're likely to do it again, actually it's quite difficult to forgive the past. Uh, so that determination is very important. Uh, so learning from the past, I would say the most important thing is to just to know that you made a mistake. Yeah, there's, sometimes there isn't that much to learn. And just then to kind of set the course in a different way for the future. Understand that you want to do things differently in the future. That, I think, is the most important thing. And then you'll be able to go beyond it. Uh, um, you know... Sometimes there isn't that much to learn from the past. Uh, much better, look at what you have done now. If you make a mistake now, ask yourself, why am I making this mistake now, in this moment? Uh, and what you will find is that the reason I'm making this mistake right now is because I'm looking at this person in the wrong way. Uh, I'm not giving them enough benefit of the doubt. I don't have enough compassion. I'm judging them too harshly, whatever it might be. Uh, at that moment, that is where you change and you learn how to think for the future. Uh. Next question is from Miami. Hello, Miami. It's really cool. Bolivia, then Miami. <laughs> How do I know I will find Buddhism upon reincarnation? Okay, the way you know that is that you practice Buddhism to the very best of your ability right here and now. You go as far as you possibly can on the Buddhist path. You learn, understand the Buddha's teachings, not from some scallywag like myself or some other dodgy character, but from the Buddha himself. And when you know the word of the Buddha himself, uh, yeah, then that is the universal expression of Buddhism. Then when you get reborn, because that is the universal expression of Buddhism, uh, 
that is the Buddhism that everyone shares, and then you were able to uh, find it again when you get reborn. If, it, if the Buddhism you receive in this life is too idiosyncratic, uh, too related to what, how an individual presents it, uh, then it is difficult to find it again in the future. Yeah. So practice to your best of your ability, understand the teachings to the best of your ability, then when you get reborn and you hear the Dhamma, assuming the Dhamma is available, you will think, wait a minute, uh, I've heard this before somewhere. There's something kind of clicking here. What's going on? And maybe that is why you are also a Buddhist in this life. I don't know. I'm not sure what your background is, but maybe that is the reason. Next question is from Devmin Subasinghe from Sri Lanka. Bolivia, Miami, Sri Lanka. This is really nice. Venerable Ajahn Brahm, I am a 17-year-old that is somewhat realizing the nature of suffering in this world and these never-ending desires. It is hard to explain, but there is a strong inclination within me to take up the robes of a monk. My parents say I am free to do whatever I want to after I get my first degree, and that's understandable. What would you do? <laughs> it's not about what I would do, it's about what you would do. And uh, what, you, maybe I, what I would recommend you to do is, uh, um, first of all, Congratulations on kind of having that inclination. I had that inclination myself, and that's how I ended up as a Buddhist monk. Um, so what you should do is try out a few different monasteries. Check out a few different teachers. Yeah? And uh, what you will find out then is a place that is suitable for you. So what are the qualities of a good monastery? There's two things that I would, I would say of a good monastery. Number one, they rely on the teaching of the Buddha. Yeah, that includes also the monastic uh, regulations as well, like the rules for monks, that is also included in that. They rely on the word of the Buddha as the real teaching of Buddhism in the final analysis. Uh, that is incredibly important. There's too much uh, in the world, or when you rely on a teacher, rely on individuals, you don't know whether you have the real teaching or not. Incredibly important that you rely on the teaching of the Buddha. So if someone is too charismatic and they kind of outshine the Buddha, then there might be a problem here. Number two, go to a monastery where you feel at ease, where you feel natural, where you feel that you don't feel uptight, where you feel that there is not too much fault-finding, so you can't really relax properly. Because if you are in a place where you feel at ease, where you relax, where you feel comfortable, then your practice will go well, your meditation will go well, and then you have the happiness that will enable you to sustain the monastic life. These are the two things I would recommend. Yeah? And then, then it is likely that you will find a good place. And of course, you also it's good to be inspired by the teacher in the monastery. Yeah? So someone who you feel has the right kind of attitude, the right kind of views, and maybe they are on the path to awakening. I myself have no doubt that there are beings in the world today, people in the world today, who still are close, maybe are awakened or close to awakening. Uh, they still exist in the world today. And what a wonderful thing that is, if that is true. And I've, I'm pretty sure it is true. Uh, last person today, Gloria Wong from Hong Kong. Bolivia, Miami, Sri Lanka, Hong Kong. It's pretty good, isn't it? Uh, hello, Gloria. So, question, do we really have the ability to make decisions then, or our ability to make decisions also entirely depends on conditioning. And uh, this is uh, really kind of coming back to the idea of free will or not. 
And uh, uh, the point is that your decisions matter. That is the most important point. Uh, it is not like you can just lie in bed all day and everything is okay. That's, not, that's the wrong way of thinking about it. Your decisions absolutely matter. It matters whether you are kind, decide to be kind or not kind. It matters whether you get out of bed and do the right thing or not. It matters. All of these things are important. Uh, the question rather is where does that decision come from? Uh, does it come from the Buddha because the Buddha said you should do it, or does it come from you? And so I would say because you are a Buddhist, because you hang around Buddhists, a lot of that morality, the thing we do, is actually conditioning coming from the Buddha. Yeah? The Buddha says, be careful, so we are careful. The Buddha says, look left and right before they cross the road. Oh no, he didn't say that actually, that's true. I said that, all right. Okay, anyway, so that's, there we are, right? So straight away you get confused. But the Buddha said to be careful anyway. Yeah, and so um, uh, whether it is conditioning or not doesn't really matter so much. It feels like you have the ability to choose. Choose well. Use that feeling yeah, to choose well in your life. Then you're going to be on the right track. Yeah. Okay, everyone, that is all for tonight. So let's just pay homage to Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Thank <laughs> you.